this insecurity and this self-awareness, uh, this flight from scrutiny that are all symptomatic of this personal decay. And that's something that Paul calls spiritual death. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, <laughs> Alex, Kent, and Nathan, <laughs> are seeking to recover yeah, from fail. <laughs> bad ideas about God and recover the true faith. We're in a series, Recovering Faith. This is episode seven. Nathan, I thought we would do a, um, a, a little preview of the episode. Uh, so let's hit the high points, and then we'll go back. Okay. The, the key points are, number one, salvation requires a liberation from the corrupting influence of society, but also a reversal of the corruption spreading within each person. Man, Boom, our main yeah. points are long sentences. It's oh, too long. Too, I actually just stole a, yeah, it's just, it, I, I'm going to have to cut that down a little bit. We've yeah. been talking about how we need to be saved just, with, uh, yeah. from corrupt society. And um, today you're transitioning us to, from uh, society to corruption. We've yes. been talking about society and how that corrupts us, but now we're talking about the corruption that's within each person. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's our point number one, and then we're going to move to this next point. People who recognize that they are disintegrating often seek out religion to bolster their virtuous side. Yeah. Okay, so there's some more darkness for us to delve it's into. It's all darkness. What are we saved from? <laughs> Keep in mind, this is all under the major heading, what are we saved from? So it's not going to be rosy until we get to how are we saved. Good. Yes. Which is now, next week? Let's say yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. And our third point today will be people who recognize the inconsistency between their values and their actions often seek healing in religion and end up worse off. More wow. darkness. Yes. And then Paul, down. the last one, Paul saw himself as one of the walking dead. And we'll spell, we'll, we'll talk about what that means uh, as we go on today. And so zombie that's an overview at least yeah. of where we're going today. Creepy as heck. Yeah. But point number one is salvation requires a liberation from the corrupting influence of society. Yes, we've been talking about that, but it also requires a reversal of the corruption spreading within each person. Right. Yeah. So we've been saying that we need to be free from society because if our moral compass is outside of ourselves, then we're susceptible to do all kinds of terrible things. We've talked about Milgram, the agentic shift that, hey, I, I was just doing my job when I was exterminating all those Jews or whatever, you know, killing people in Vietnam. Um, and, and so there's a fundamental problem that is resident. Most of us don't notice it because maybe we're not being asked to do something utterly horrible, but it's still important that we're free because if that were to happen, then we need to be set free, but also because we can't develop our own moral center if we're just simply pleasing other people. And so it's critically important if we're talking about what do we need to be saved from, and it's not some eventuality, although that's included, that's a part of it, but we we need God's power to save us from a clear and present danger. Part of that is the influence of society on us, how it's shaping us and how it's depriving us of our personhood, right? 
But that's not the only problem because like, uh, and we'll talk about some about AA today, but one of the sayings of Alcoholics Anonymous is wherever you go, there you are, (laughs) right? So even if we could create a utopia or if we could um, move off to a desert island or whatever, that doesn't mean that we would become virtuous people or the people that we'd hope to be because there's something wrong within each of us. So as we talk about Peter in Acts chapter 2, he, he pled with the people that he was preaching to save yourselves from this corrupt society, right? Mm-hmm. So we need to be saved from society to be saved from a corrupt society, but we also need to be saved from corruption itself. Uh, what do you guys think when you hear the word corruption? Uh, rotting, decay. Right, yeah. You have a you have a good older understanding of it, and it really is where it came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, if I don't know, have you guys you've been to Thailand? Did you see a lot of uh, Alex? Did, did you see a lot of government corruption there? Yeah, a lot of literal rotten decay as well. Right, <laughs> as a <laughs> as a result, nobody's there to clean things up. Right. Yeah, um, everything's kind of falling apart, both inside and outside. Right. Know? Yeah. So. Society can become corrupt, and, and we talk about that, a corrupt politician, somebody's taking bribes, but um, what we don't really consider plumb the depths of is, is that, that the implication there is that this is something that is um, invisible and that it is progressive. Um, so it's something, you know, someone, nobody takes a bribe out in public, nobody, you know. <laughs> It's like this special interest bought a vote from this candidate, and he's got this giant check. You know, right. uh, it's it's kind of back to you know back room under the table, whatever you want to call it. It's something that's insidious, um, and yet it undermines the foundations of society. It it begins to disintegrate society. Society stops functioning as it should. Nobody's paying anybody to fix uh, what's broken. Uh, you think about the uh, Sochi Olympics and the Olympic Village and how all of the facilities were just falling in there. You know, this, that's a picture of corruption. There was plenty of money that went into this. I mean, this was the premier um, goal of, of Putin's regime during that time, just to put on an amazing Olympics to prove the viability of the Russian state and its superiority, and yet, despite that, everything was a train wreck there. Because people are pocketing money rather than spending it on its designated purpose, is the right. point. Right, and so there's a there's a rot, to Alex's point, in, in, in Latin. I, I thought it was interesting. I hadn't thought through the etymology of the word corruption, but uh, core, meaning a core, um, a corpus, right, a yeah. body, and then rupt, like rupture, rupture, right? Yeah. So it's this idea of a, of a disintegrating. They didn't understand cells, but the nuclei of your cells, should you die uh, at this moment or ever before Jesus comes back anyway, uh, that there will be this, the nuclei of your cells rupture. There's a, uh, a corrupting that happens. And so corruption can be an interpersonal political governmental phenomenon, but it comes from an intrapersonal experience, something that seems to be present in every one. Um, yeah. So I think we had 
um, alluded to this a little bit last time. And the answer is that, okay, so society is corrupt, so we should go pull away and form our own righteous society. <laughs> that, that, right. Because we're just going to keep taking the problem with mm-hmm. us because it's a, it's a problem that's coming from within that seeps into society and corrupts it mm-hmm. no matter no matter and, where it is. And an alternative approach, and a, a, it would also be to, a common approach would be to, rather than leave society, try to fix society, fix the system, get or yeah. replace the system with a new system. And the point we're making here is that that doesn't work either because you haven't fixed the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the Beatles were incredibly insightful in their song, Revolution, you know. Say you want a revolution, hey, you know, we all want to change, is it? The, change world. the world. I mean, everybody does, right? Uh, and he's like, but when you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, when you when you want money for people with minds that hate, um, they they realize that there's something very dangerous about that revolutionary mentality. Um, so even in in the name of what's righteous, we we begin to be very uncritical of our own mm-hmm. corruption. We see ourselves as, you know. Uh, warriors for righteousness and virtue and certainly nothing we do could be wrong because uh, you know we are an inherently benign influence in our society and boy that's that's a dangerous thing so um corruption is to be disintegrated as a person to be corrupt and so when we talk about being disintegrated we're immediately talking about the constituent parts of our nature right (laughs) So, um, and I appeal to Milgram and I appeal to um, others, secular thinkers and stuff, because again, the case is we need to be saved from something that is obvious to everyone. At least to thinking people, people who are thinking right. critically about what's what uh, about reality. Yeah, may- maybe it's better to say we need to be saved from something that's available, that's observable. Mm-hmm that the knowledge of it is available to everyone. You don't have to read the Bible to know that humankind needs saving. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we need saving from is a disintegrated self. And uh, so Freud, God bless him, wherever he is, um, poor man, <laughs> saw humankind as tripartite, as um, the ego, the id, and the superego. So... For him, that you know, the ego is this central part, the 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 me. When I talk about myself, right, and then the id is this these baser drives. In in his case, it all came down to sex, and maybe it does. I don't know. But then the super ego is this superlative self, this this higher virtuous moral self. And uh, so Freud saw that the human psyche and that um, mental illness and and other things were caused at least in part by an imbalance of these things or when these are out of sync when the ego is being afflicted and you know alternately by the id and the super ego just happens to be what paul talked about in the bible um in the bible he speaks of us as being body soul and spirit or flesh mind and spirit he uses these terms somewhat um, interchangeably. But uh, so the body in, in Paul's conception, the body would be analogous to Freud's id and that the um, spirit would be analogous to the superego and that the 
soul slash mind would be analogous to the ego. And so there's, there's a part of me that's me. When I say my, you know, my body is out of shape, right? I'm, I'm objectifying my body. I'm not saying my body is me. I'm talking about me and then my body is something mm-hmm. else is, you know, or um, I can say, you know, my spirit is out of peace. And I can talk about that. Now I can talk about my mind, but for the most part, we're speaking from that central element of who we are. And uh, so Freud would say, well, if your id and your superego are yanking you in half, then you, you know, you have mental illness and stuff. And um, Paul would say, no, the, the problem's a bit larger than that, since he's not talking in terms of psychology, but talking in terms of, of metaphysics, that there's something happening, that the fact that we're being afflicted by a part of ourself suggests there's something within us some other influence that is um, responsible somewhat for, for this thing. So corruption, in, intrapersonal corruption is when we are out of sync with our values, with the person that we choose to believe that we are, you know, and pretty much everybody is. And, and that's why we're so uncritical of ourselves. We go out to, to fix other people and can't recognize that we are the problem um, because we're just in denial over our um, disintegration, over the disparity between that we're not who living we think up we are. to our values and right. the expectations we have set for ourselves. Right, which kind of brings us to the next. People who recognize that they are disintegrating often seek out religion to bolster their virtuous side. Yeah. Maybe a better point here would be that people tend to be in denial even when they go to address their disintegration. Uh, You know, that, that we just, we find another layer to kind of, um, we put a, a gold ring in a sow's nose or whatever you want to call it, that we, we try to embellish our failings under a religious uh, veneer. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, instead of moving us towards salvation, it actually moves us farther away. Um, we mean well. People who right. feel they're recognizing that, the, that they're not living up to uh, their values they will often say i'm going to get back into church yeah yeah or they they go to church (laughs) yeah you know and they and they give and um you know they they just talk about all of the the good things that they do but at work they stabbing people in the back and trying to undermine other people's success and stuff like that Uh, so it doesn't make them any better of a person they just layer on some contrived performance that nobody else would celebrate and um, use that as a, as a veneer to cover the fact that, you know, if you were to corner them and say, hey, are you a dirty lizard? <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? It's just like, well, I watched how you interacted with your boss and you just look a lot like a dirty lizard. <laughs> They're like, of course, I'm not a dirty lizard. I'm a good man. I work hard. I support my family. I'm faithful to my wife. I go to church every Sunday. It's like, so you're a dirty lizard that goes to church, you know? And it's just people, we have a hard time confronting that. Um, 
And uh, I don't know why I get off onto the tangent of AA, except to say that that getting past this denial is important. And, and a lot of people who came up as, as churchgoers and became alcoholics found that AA was a lot better church than the one they grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew a guy uh, who went to this very legalistic church that I came out of, and, you know, we were all, we were all crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Uh, and he was a fallen down alcoholic. Um, and so I'll oh, pray for, pray for Alan again, you know, oh, where is he? Why isn't he at church? I just, you know, he's, he's not doing good. So, bad. so he's the guy that everybody looks down on. Right. Um, and, and when he started going to AA, he found a real spirituality. I think for the first time in his life, uh, that this church just didn't provide. So. Uh, because he had gotten to the place where he just didn't believe at all. I mean, if if you're destroying your own life and you know you're messing everything up and you can't seem to get better, it you start to think, man, maybe it's better to not have God in the equation at all. So, yeah, um, we have this powerful ability to deny. Where, but when you go to AA, the it begins with the admission that um what is it you need a higher power that oh it says here yeah you quoted it here in your in your article we admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable yeah yeah and then and then one of the other first points is we reached out to a higher power yeah step two step two is is that we you know we we reached out to a, a higher power um and it's in there somewhere but that's okay uh yeah but it is so important to kind of come to this moment of, of reality for anybody that's wanting to get better and to, and to stop maximizing our virtues and minimizing our failings and to just come to a place where we say, I'm powerless. But if you're powerless, well, doesn't that mean you're dead? <laughs> I mean, this idea of, of decaying and corruption, that you are the problem and that's where it has to start, you know. Um, so for, for people in AA, they just really do need to have this moment to look in the mirror um, because that's the last thing most of us ever want to do. Um, and, and so that's kind of critically important. Um, yeah, I quote Manning about um, the story about Max that I, I found particularly powerful. Uh, probably want to read that in the episode notes. We won't go through that right now, but... Uh, you know, um, we do want to we do want to believe that we're as good as as we can possibly be, and and we want to deny that we need saving from ourselves. And I'm here to tell you that you do need saving from yourself. Uh, and we're we're so hesitant to admit that we're the problem that even the even the first step of AA seems to soften the blow. Uh, and. I, I don't want to critique what they're doing. Uh, their their methods have have brought a lot of healing to a lot of people, but that first step says we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, and no one has ever been powerless over alcohol. Alcohol just sits on the shelf. <laughs> you know, it's a substance. It's a byproduct of fermentation, and it has zero power. But it's easier to say we admitted we were powerless over alcohol than it was to say we admitted that we were powerless to control ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. There's a, an indictment there, if you say that. And yet, that's where we have to go, I think, if we're really going to be saved. And so it helps, even this approximate admission um, of corruption, it helps. And so it moved them on to step two, which is we came to go back one. We, we came to uh, believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's step two. Yeah. And according to a Stanford uh, School of Medicine study, concluded that AA is the most effective path to alcohol abstinence. So of all the methods out there in the world, AA is the best we've got. Where we right. recognize that we're powerless and that there's a power greater than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And your point is that these are some fundamental uh, features of faith, Christian yes. faith, is to recognize that we're powerless. We need saving from ourselves, and we've got to reach outside of ourselves to a great, to a higher power. Right. And, and that higher power can do it. Really, save us. really, yeah. Steps one and two, if you take them together, is save me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and could I suggest that if AA works, then maybe there's somebody trying to save us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm just trying to make the case that we need saving. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that we need saving. If we don't know that we need saving, it's just because we're in a state of denial. Maybe we haven't fallen victim to alcohol, but we are, we do have something besetting that is afflicting us and we need saving from our own tendencies, not just what's coming from outside, but from the, the drives and these inclinations and these instincts or whatever that seem to be welling up from within that are undermining our attempts to become something more, something we envision. Um, and we can lie to ourselves all we want. It won't make it so. It won't bridge that gap. Um, you know, Some people will say, well, AA works, but it isn't Christian. And I would say two things to that. One... I think God is able to respond to someone who calls on him in ignorance. That's frankly the only people who ever call on him. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, is it would work better if it were Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, not, and the reason, truly Christian. Right. And the reason for that isn't that isn't because, um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say it's, it's not because it's not a, a defined enough religious system. I'm saying it's because it's overly defined that AA has still a rule, a system of rules. And um, because of that, rules will undermine the reintegration of the self. And that's where we're going to go next. But for now, I want to just cite that, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, for all the good work that they do, they leave someone in a state of perpetual recovery as opposed to recovered or healed. Um, and uh, so that, that would be a critique. I know it perhaps seems unsafe to suggest doing otherwise, but there's this rule in Alcoholics Anonymous, don't drink, (laughs) right? So one thing that we can do, by the way, if anybody has not yet seen the show Patriot, you should watch it. 
Okay, because there's a scene there that'll just crack you up. Anyway, I'm gonna—I don't want to tell you what it is, but watch the show Patriot on Amazon Prime. Okay, uh, and also don't tell anybody I told you to do that. Okay, <laughs> we have another point there, Kent. People who recognize the inconsistency between their values and their actions often seek healing in religion and end up worse off. Why is that? Right? Uh, have, have you all experienced this? Uh, I don't know. You didn't. You guys. I don't think either of you had a, a very extensive pre-religious life, did you? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't either, really. But no, yeah. So not much help you, here, right? You go, yeah. yeah. Um, you get religion, and, and and there's a wonderful thing about it that you know. There's this purpose. Uh, there's a narrative. Things start to make sense. Like before, you're a believer. You have this lurking suspicion that things aren't right. Um, and you're, you have these goals in life and you're trying to meet them and you're doing stuff that you don't want people to know about, uh, at least some people and, but maybe just don't get caught. That's about it. And, and at some point you may decide, man, I just can't do this anymore. Um, and so I just come up with a scenario. There's a guy, let's assume he's been unfaithful to his wife and, um, to get, her to forgive him, he says, look, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll even go to church, right? And he goes to church, and he he really, the sermon gets a hold of him, and, and he started out doing it for his wife, and now he's, he's doing it for himself. And he starts reading the Bible, and he gets to Matthew 5, and it says, you know, I tell you that whoever looks uh, on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he was getting a little better, and now he's way worse in terms of his integrated self. Right. Oh, oh, great. Now, now right. I get to be guilty every time I think about it. <laughs> right, right, right. So I, you know, I, I had this affair and I was, I was, I was disintegrated, say once a week. Um, but now I'm disintegrated 20 times a day. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That, that the person I want to be and the person that I'm, that I'm, am, the, what I'm actually doing, they are fracturing even, even more than ever. Um, and, and if the point isn't to just be respectable or to hit some external moral um, mark, then if the point is to be integrated as a person, then this guy's moved backward by becoming religious. Does that mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yeah. So when we say corruption, uh, we're talking about personal decay, and when we talk about personal decay. We're really talking about what Paul calls death or the spiritual principle, the law of death, right? Um, now, some and, people, I think, in Christian circles, in some Christian circles, would describe that as like growing in Christian maturity. Like in the Reformed tradition or in the, in the in Reformed circles that I've been part of, that's, that's seen as humility and growth that you feel disintegrated all the time. Sure. Because you because you're like oh, increasingly aware of your sinfulness, and yeah. you see it at every turn, and you're in touch with it, and you feel mm-hmm. the disparity, and you are recognize that you're committing sins every throughout the day, and you're confessing repeatedly, and you're therefore turning to Christ and receiving forgiveness, and that's kind of described. You tell me if that if I'm mischaracterizing what you're saying, but but but. But I'm thinking that a lot of times in a lot of Christian circles, that's described as maturity, to feel disintegrated. I, yeah, I've heard that. I have a technical term for that. I, 
It's called BS. <laughs> Great. <laughs> let's 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 hear why. I think you're trying to tell us why, but I want to just I just sure. want to point that out. Yeah. Right. Uh, so those people would read Romans seven, where Paul says the things that I want to do I don't do, and um, the things that I um, don't do. I mean, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I do, I hate. Um, and they would say, that's the normal Christian life. But Paul calls that death. So, yeah, what, which one is it? Are, are, are we, is Christ the minister of death or of life? Now, for Paul, Paul would say in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that, yeah, he is the minister of death to those who are perishing. To those who are corrupting, who are decaying, he is the minister of death. To those who who believe, he's the minister of life. And and so we're going. We are that life is springing up, not death. Um, so I I am astonished anytime somebody reads Romans seven and is like, see, see, that's me. If Paul struggled like that, then surely I can't expect anything better. And I'm like. Dude, you're so full of crap. I don't want to hear this ever again. I never want to hear somebody tell me they identify with Paul in that as as some sort of a comfort. Okay? Um, the reason being because Paul is describing a life under the law, a life that is dead. It, that The overarching context is you needed to die to the law so that you could live, live to Christ, not remain in a dead state and and spiritual death isn't just something in the mind of god it's not just that he doesn't answer your prayers that it is a very real experience that people have today spiritual death is something you can experience now you think if you were physically dead you wouldn't know it well maybe you wouldn't depending on how you see that but others wouldn't know it that it wouldn't be something that would have an impact now of course it would and so when paul talks about this and he and he says these things he's not saying this is the normal christian life he says this is a state known as death amen yeah. so in in romans chapter 7 um it, he he describes this state of spiritual death right he says uh can't go ahead and give us a radio voice in romans uh, romans 7 9 through 10 so i find it to be a law that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay, thanks, Jesus. You made us wretched, right? Is that what he did? No! Of course not. Yeah, what does well, the next verse say, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, so let's just, just dwell there for a minute. According yeah. to this relatively common view of the Christian life. Um, yes, he has uh, set up salvation in such a way that we, throughout this life, experience this death. And it teaches us to depend on him rather than ourselves for our justification. And basically that's the Christian life is growing ever more aware of our sinfulness, therefore ever more grateful that we are justified by faith in Christ, that we're forgiven, yeah. and, in that, and, then in, and hoping for that day when we will be released from our bodies 
and the power of sin. Right. That's the Christian life, according to that version of Christianity. So yeah. be miserable until you die. Is that right? What we're saying? Yeah. Be <laughs> more maybe, be more miserable than an unsafe person. Right. Yeah. Be more miserable. Not just to be miserable, but I mean, everybody's life's miserable uh, to some degree, but more miserable because you're more miserable. aware of how how bad you are. Right. And you're at least and, and, you, and you feel bad about it and you're repentant of it. And the good thing, yeah. at least, is that you're repentant of it and that you're forgiven. Yay. Yay. You I'm, suck. I'm miserable and forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I right. feel great. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and But we don't need Jesus to make us miserable in that way. And that's Paul's contention is that it's the law. He says the law came and caused this. So, and really any law, any moral law, any prohibition, as I mentioned with AA, even the law don't drink. That's enough. It's enough to awaken in us this pull toward drinking. Ironically, right? Uh, Jung even said, what you resist persists. So this reminder, this constant reminder, you're an alcoholic. Don't drink. Don't be near alcohol. Don't be unguarded. Don't be... Hungry, angry, what is it? Uh, lonely, lonely and tired, right? Don't, you know, you are on the hair of uh, the brink of, of a complete relapse. Don't do it. Man, that narrative is going to leave you in the borderlands of alcoholism. It just will. Um, and it's true of sin. Okay. Don't, you know, put a filter on your computer. Don't be alone with your computer. Don't, you know, go to these sites. Don't have private passwords. I'm communicating to you that you are a closeted porn freak and you need to be controlled from outside, right? Um, all of this is, is the antithesis of, um, of life, of, of victory. So let, let's just take apart this little piece, this Romans 27, 21 through 24. So, you know, he, he says... I, there's a law, okay? I find it to be a law, a principle. What is this law? What's that first that law? When I, that, that when I do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Okay, that's it. There's a law out there, a principle. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Okay, that's a spiritual law. It's an immutable law. I don't have to convince you of it. I don't have to enforce it. It's going to happen. Okay, just like gravity, right? If you jump off a building, you're going to fall. You don't have to have studied law or not. still going to hit you, right? Law one is, and, and he doesn't name this law specifically, uh, so I'll do it at this moment, I guess. <laughs> I'll, it, it is the law of death, and he'll go on to specifically mention it in chapter eight when we get to the actual mechanics of how we're saved. But So the law of one is law of death, and that's the law of disintegration, that I want to do what's right but, right, but evil lies close at hand and keeps me from doing it. Right, and he just says, look, I've been through this, however old Paul was. I have been trying to obey the 10th commandment, thou shalt not lust my whole life. And having gone through an entire life of attempting to obey this and finding myself sinking deeper and deeper into its clutches, I've discovered that there's an immutable law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Okay. okay. Law number one. That's law one. Okay. Law number two, for I delight in the law of God. Okay. 
in my law of God is number two. Right. And so, and, and whatever you perceive that law to be, obviously for Paul, it was the Torah. Uh, but perhaps if you're from another religious system or, or whatever, or fundamentalist Christian system, or others where you have a pretty clear notion of your rights and wrongs, um, that's your law of God. You think God wants you to do that, right? This is what uh, God wants for, right. like, what God wants for sure. my life, how God wants me to live. Right. So, I mean, the content of the law is immaterial. It's just that God has imposed his will upon you in a prescriptive manner. But that law, that law of God activates the law of death. If it weren't for the law of God telling you, you want to do right, you you should do right, here's what right is, then the law of death wouldn't become activated. You'd be integrated in your evil, right? Uh, and, and so he says, he says, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and that's this law of death, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so there's something wrong with me. The fact that the, the higher my aspirations and the greater my resolve, the deeper the gravity with which I treat this law of God, the, the deeper I am pulled into corruption. That's scary. And we talked about how people in fundamentalist systems cannot be trusted <laughs> because they've learned to bifurcate themselves into a public and a private self. And they are decaying underneath that public self. And that's scary. But this decay is happening to everyone. The law of death is operational on everyone, and it becomes intensified the more religious we become. So that's kind of a scary thought. And it really goes back. You correlate that to the uh, Genesis story. Yes. I do. Yeah, I mean, God says on that day, you will surely die, right? Then you get to Genesis 5, and it's like Adam was 130, and he had Seth, and he lived another 800 years, and was 930 years old, and he died. And I'm like, you know, is God like one of these parents? It's like, I'm telling you, I'm going to do it, you know? (laughs) It's just like, uh, don't wait till I count to 930 years, Uh, you know, um, was it that Adam began to die then? It seems that a death took place on the day mm-hmm. that there's this um, breaking death. of the innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That occurs, which is this disintegration that you're describing. Yes. And so Adam goes from uh, naked and unashamed to hiding from God. Mm-hmm. There's, there's this insecurity and this self-awareness uh, this flight from scrutiny that are all symptomatic of this personal decay. And that's something that Paul calls spiritual death. So back to your point, Kent, um, and to those Reformed um, theologians or whoever they are, if you're supposed to be dead, then that's what Jesus wants for you. I <laughs> just, you know, uh, it, you can't both... you. You can't say Romans 7 applies, at least is normative for the Christian, and Ephesians 2, you were once dead in your sins, and he has made you alive. Either you're in Romans 7 or you're in Rome, or you're in Ephesians 2. 
Well, right. I mean, I think I've, the way I would put it is Romans <clears throat> eight in the, in Romans eight, Paul says that you know God has set us free in right. Christ. We're set free from the law of sin and death. So he's describing himself as under the law of sin and death in Romans mm-hmm. seven, but in Romans eight, he's free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So which is it? Right. Um, well, there's a fourth law. We won't delve deep into it, but he says, he says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have to take away this sense of, of performance and, and trying to achieve a standard. So you've been exonerated, right? Quit obsessing over the prohibitions. Why is there no condemnation? So you'll quit obsessing over the prohibitions because it's not getting you anywhere. It's awakening this law of death and it's killing you, right? But then he says, For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death, mm-hmm. or set you free. Mm-hmm. So there's a new law. There's a fourth law. The, the law only of the way to counter of life in Christ Jesus. Right. The only way to counter this kind of trifecta of law that was destroying us is to replace all three, to eliminate the three and replace them with one, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so we are supposed to be becoming ever more integrated, invigorated. That is the law of spirit of life, that these sorts of these dynamics of not being able to do what we want to do, the right that we want to do, needs to be diminishing in us and that there's an integration that needs to begin to come together and so i like in the law of the spirit of uh or the law of death to zombie ants zombie ants. zombie yeah. ants. man i read that and i was pretty freaked out by it should we read it yeah we should totally read about well do we have time it's like should we read about it? yes let's read about zombie ants they're so awesome and scary <laughs> there's a fungus in the rainforest of brazil referred to as the zombie ant fungus. Here's how it got that name. When the fungus infects a carpenter ant, it grows through the insect's body, draining it of nutrients and hijacking its mind. Over the course of a week, it compels the ant to leave the safety of its nest and ascend a nearby plant stem. It stops the ant at a height of 25 centimeters, a zone with precisely the right temperature and humidity for the fungus to grow. It forces the ant to permanently lock its mandibles around a leaf. Eventually, it sends a long stalk through the ant's head, growing into a bulbous capsule full of spores. And because the ant typically climbs a leaf that overhangs its colony's foraging trails, the fungal spores rain down onto its sisters below, zombifying them in turn. That's pretty freaky cool. <laughs> I know. Man, I just so want to write a, a script of that kind of zombie. I mean, can you imagine? It's like, you know, it's a walking dead, but the head's still alive. And it's like, kill me, you know, or stop me. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's wreaking all this havoc. This body is just completely wreaking havoc when the head is like, you know, make it stop. Uh, that would be just terrifying. Uh, and yet that's what happens to these poor ants. And so, yeah, if it were if it were in any creature, you know, any larger it would just be just like keep you up at night kind of terrifying. Um, and, and it's still somewhat scary as it's also cool. Um, but it seems to me that that is, is very similar to what Paul is describing. 
that he's describing being conscious and and almost watching himself do things that he hates mm-hmm. and or neglecting things that he feels are important uh and and so somehow this law of sin in him is has left his brain intact his his soul is here to witness the the terrible things that he's doing but all i i, I use this analogy to make Again, the point that we need saving. I mean, what would that little ant say if you could talk to her as she's climbing the stem? Save me! Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and specifically, save me from this dead body. Yeah. You know? that, uh, And that's what they've discovered is that this fungus, it starts as a single cell, and then that, my, that multiplies and multiplies, and then they begin to link up. And they create their own like nervous system. It it doesn't actually infect the ant's brain. It just infiltrates all of its muscles and serves as a secondary brain. Like it matrix. cuts off. It just cuts off all of the impulses from the ant's brain to its body and hijacks it so that the ant is now its puppet. Terrifying thought, but. Uh, we need to be saved. And so, Paul, you know, I'm, uh, again, to your uh, your question, Kent, about uh, the this Reformed movement and, and some of the people who are just focusing on all, how sinful they are, um, you know, if they were to encounter Paul and Paul were to say, who will save me from this dead body? They would say, nobody. Mm, right. Those, those Reformed types... Yeah, because that's Jesus, just normal, Jesus right? Jesus will save me in the end. Right, yeah, you should save you. Uh, work harder at it. Confess your sins more. You know, rifle through your own morality. Stare into your navel until it's completely free of lint. Um, that no one's there to save you from it, that it is something you're here, that sanctification is very much a, an act of works, and, and so there's no one to save you from your dead body. Um, and yet Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me, in verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, so there, there is salvation, right? Um, and not just when we physically die. Right, right. And he says, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh a slave to the law of sin. But we are not in ourselves, and we're not of ourselves. There's something more mm-hmm. going on. Under our own power, yes, these things are true, but there is salvation, right? And so that's what I guess would be the the walk away for today is, is that if you've ever regretted something you've done, if you've ever been ashamed, if you've ever tried to hide the evidence, right? If you've ever had a secret um, indiscretion, right? If you've ever entertained just dark and poisonous thoughts that you would never want broadcast in public. You are in a dead body and you need saving that, that you are being corrupted, disintegrated by an, a foreign entity. That sets us up for next time.
where we're going to get rosier and happier, yeah. maybe. Let's get happier. Hang in there, people. Hang in yeah. there. Good stuff is coming. Yes. <laughs> you can email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Uh, until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Mm-hmm.